Welcome to all of you who arrived a little bit late. If you were expecting to see Gina, she's um, unfortunately had to stay home uh, to, uh, to be with her husband, who's uh, not doing so well, unfortunately. Um, so I'm John Aaron. Nice to see some familiar faces and some new faces. Uh, before I forget, also if you arrived late, if you're, if you're a member, of uh, the t-shirts have arrived. If you're not a member, you can be jealous of those that have t-shirts and become a member and you'll get a t-shirt. Uh, so after, the, after we're done at noon, um, Deepak and Monica will help you obtain your t-shirt, um, which come in small, medium, large, and extra large. Um, and speaking of membership, so we had a board meeting yesterday, uh, and we have a new executive director named Brian Neff, who is uh, really quite wonderful, and we're happy to have him. As sad as we were to see 7A go, we're happy to have somebody of Brian's abilities and strengths. Um, so we're, you know, we were talking about this whole issue of generosity and Donna and the different ways of, you know, that people give to New York Inside and support New York Inside and, you know, what is the difference, which I talk about a lot when I'm here, between, you know, membership, Donna, like for the daily, for the sits like tonight and the sort of annual campaign that we have. So just to be clear, membership, you know, really helps support the ongoing operation, the $10,000 of rent we have and the per month and the uh, salaries that we pay. The Donna, like for today, helps to support the teachers and the teachings. It allows the teachers to continue uh, doing their own uh, study, of course. Uh, at least half of what I sort of earn through Donna or half of what I, I'm gifted through Donna goes to the teachers that I work with. So it's a kind of cyclical process that's been going on for a long time, like 2,500 years. Um, and then the annual, and then other, other uh, half of, of the, the Donna, which arrives for these sits like today and Tuesday and Thursday, um, goes to the center. Um, and then the annual campaign, you know, really goes t toward growth. Um, and, you know, we have some expansion ideas that will start taking shape probably in the next 12 months. Um, and while we're in quite good shape, um, it's, you know, we can always be in better shape. So that's how, how funds are dispersed, you know, and that's the difference between membership and capital or ongoing campaign, which at times is a capital campaign. And for instance, you know, these chairs will need to be replaced at some point, or the cushions will need to be, do need to be replaced, I should say. Um, so things like that, yeah? So I just, that tr transparency is important. Uh, so I just wanted to make that clear. A um, couple of upcoming events. It's not a lot happening at this time of the year, but we have uh, an interesting teacher who's going to be here both on Friday the 31st and Friday the 7th, 
guy named Oren Safer. Uh, sorry, Oren Safer. Uh, and the t topic on those two nights is how we wake up. And then <laughs> indirectly related to that is Anam Thupten, who actually comes from another tradition, but I understand is a really wonderful teacher. I've never been with him. He's here on Sunday, August 9th, and it's just called An Awakening Retreat. So give yourself that opportunity to awaken. Um, yeah. So I always like to start, especially when I have less than 24 hours notice that I'm going to be leading, I always like to start with seeing what's here and who's here and what questions might be arising for anybody. Um, I did sort of dig into my files and find something interesting to talk about, I hope. But I may change that depending on what's here. So if you have a question that came up in practice today or ha has come up for you sort of consistently over the weeks and months, feel free to put it forth. And also know that uh, if you have a question, somebody else I, I'm sure will have the same question. So don't be hesitant to ask. Yeah, in the back, way in the back. Wait, wait for the mic, hold on. Uh, yeah, my question is, um, I've been meditating for about five years and I find I'm getting increasingly sensitive, so much so that it makes it very really difficult to be in New York. Yeah, I'm sensitive to noises, light, Everything. Yeah. So I was wondering, do you have any suggestions about uh, titrating or anything to make it less difficult? Hmm. Short of leaving New York, I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, that's a really good question. Describe really what you mean by sensitive, what's happening. When I go, for instance, in the hospital, it, it feels like everyone is screaming. Mm -hmm. And uh, even in the pool, People are talking loud, and the, the noise is reverberating off the walls. Um, I'm sensitive to light. Um, right. It's rough. It's very hard. Yeah. I was very afraid when I went on my last retreat, which was in June, that being away for six days would increase my sensitivity by, you know, leaps. <laughs> so I did my own thing, and I was able to mitigate it a bit. But as what do you, what do you mean by you did your own thing? <laughs> I, instead of meditating intensely for six days, right. for many, many hours, I spent a lot of time outside with an open eye meditation. Sure, okay. And that seemed to work. Yeah. Um, I felt very euphoric when I was away. I didn't feel bad at all. When I came back to New York, <laughs> I began to feel increasingly ir ir irritated, mm. uh, sensitive. I, yeah. I tried to go slowly back into okay. public life. Right. It's certainly not, you know, unfamiliar when you come off retreat or even off just a day of sitting, you know, that when you rejoin New York, um, you know, we have increased sensitivity to all of what you're talking about. Sound, light, noise. The titrating 
so by titrating, you mean sort of letting a little bit in and then, and then uh, redirecting and coming back and redirecting. It's, that's titrating. That, that um, was one of the teacher's words that she used, titrating. She didn't explain how to titrate. Yeah, so. titrating is, is just allowing a little bit in at a time. You know, it's like when you're, when you're, if you've been in the hospital or if you've visited somebody in the hospital and there's a sort of drip mechanism, that's titrating. Uh, it's one example of that. Um, it's a little hard to titrate when it's all coming in at once, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yet, so we have voluntary attention and involuntary attention, all right? So the involuntary attention is just going wherever, what, to whatever sense is strongest, right? So if, if the light is strong, the involuntary attention is going to automatically take the awareness there, take the attention there. Sound is strong, same thing, yeah? Um, of course, the reason, you know, one of the benefits of meditation is that we learn to strengthen voluntary attention. So we strengthen voluntary attention, for instance, to bring our attention to the breath, or we strengthen voluntary attention to, you know, be, really be fully with the body. Um, so how do we, you know, negotiate those two, as it were, between, you know, the involuntary attention that happens when we leave the room here today and are lambasted by whatever happens to be on 27th Street as we, we open the door. And of course, you know, as we practice, while we do, while the sensitivity to sound and light and everything you've described um, increases, so does the capacity to hold it. And we forget about that capacity to hold it. Yeah? So what's happening is that there's the, the reactivity to the increased sensitivity, forgetting about the capacity, right? So um, the titrating in this case is you know, being present with that capacity and opening the sense up to whatever it is, if it's needed, yeah? Um, so that, you know, you go to the hospital and it sounds like everybody's yelling, right? Um, is it possible in that moment to really come back to the capacity that you've developed, you know, to sort of absorb that without reacting to it? It's like, oh, wow, you know, things are, things are really loud, right? Instead of, oh, God, things are really loud, right? There's this kind of softening around the volume versus hardening toward the volume, right? And it's like, uh, I've often thought, you know, wouldn't the world be a great place if every three months, 25% of the world met, went on retreat, yeah? And then, you know, the next three months, the other, uh, the next, and so, you know, you'd have A, a lot less people, you know, around, and they'd be meditating, and, you know, Think of that. You know, wouldn't that be cool? Um, so, but that doesn't happen, obviously. You know, so what, what is happening is that, okay, so you've developed you know, a, a certain capacity and, and your sensitivity has increased. And so in a sense, you're, you're, the, the mind is like saying, oh, why can't everybody else be like me? <laughs> you know, because that's what minds do, right? And rather, you know, see if, if you can tune back into that reservoir of that capacity that you've developed to accept 
and then you know sort of gently open to the sound instead of being so resistant to it and just see if that actually reduces the volume in itself um, but you know it's a very natural thing to just find yourself realizing how noisy things are. I mean, that's why people leave this, you know, that's why people go on retreat and they change their lives, you know. They, they decide, well, maybe this isn't, for, you know, maybe I shouldn't be living here. <laughs> but some of us don't have that choice or choose not to because there are other benefits mm -hmm. to being here, obviously, you know. And, you know, the other, the other titration is, you know, you come here, you go home, you know, that's the other part of titration. You know, you, you give yourself that gift of, of stillness. Um, and, and work with it. Good question, though. It's really challenging. Yeah. Thanks. There was another question up here. That, yeah. Hi. Um, what's so I was at a. What's your name? Sorry. Sorry, I'm John. John. Hi. So am I. Um, I was at a funeral recently, and uh, it was. They're all sad, but this one was really sad. It was like a lot of really effusive weeping and a lot of grief being expressed. And um, I, I started practicing loving kindness. Uh, and I tried to sort of wish well, you know, and wish uh, to take on the suffering of the people there. And I found that it started to feel, it started to feel selfish to do that um, because when I practice loving kindness, really what I'm doing is I'm developing my own capacity, right? And I guess there's a school of thought that you actually are literally sending loving kindness to someone making their life better. But um, I, usually, I usually tend not to go there in terms of my own practice. I like to, you, you know what I mean? I think mm -hmm. of it more in terms of a cultivation which will eventually have very real benefits because hopefully I'll be uh, a nicer person and less of a jerk. And, but so, there was this weird feeling of being a little selfish because here people are really expressing their feelings and it almost felt like instead of relating authentically to them, I was leveraging their grief as an opportunity, as some sort of weird springboard mm. to cultivate my own capacity. And I know that if I think a little more broadly about it, I'll see that ultimately developing that capacity will hopefully be better for the people around me and it's not really <coughs> selfish, but there was this visceral reaction and I'm wondering how I might work with that. Maybe I just shouldn't, if maybe I just shouldn't do loving kindness practice in such context. I don't know. I don't know. First off, it's, uh, you know, it sounds like your awareness of your own experience and your own uh, reflect, you know, the reflection that you've come to is pretty important, right? This idea that, A, well, first off, <clears throat> you know, that you, you, you were observing a bit of selfishness in there you know, which we'll talk about in a second, but the, the other thing I heard is that in a sense, and, and you didn't say this, but this is what I, I heard, and maybe you can tell me if I'm missing it, is in a sense, there was a fear of that grief. In other words, these people were sincerely expressing grief because it was a funeral, and obviously the, the grief was toward whoever had died, I mean, you know, they were expressing that, and, and there's nothing wrong with their expressing that, of course, it's important that they express it, but the fact that you were sort of trying to counter, it's like as though you were trying to counteract the grief with loving kindness. 
as opposed to joining the grief with loving kindness. Um, and you know, opening your heart to whatever was happening. This is sort of what you expressed, I think. Yeah, sort of. I mean, the truth is I felt a strong, I did feel a strong inclination to just drop the loving kindness and just be with them in that. And eventually that's what I right. did. And they're not mutually exclusive, mm. right? I mean, the heart of loving kindness is open to whatever is present. In this case, grief, right? So it's, you're right. It's not a matter of changing the people <laughs> who are grieving, right? It's just joining the grief from a place of loving kindness, from a place of open heartedness, from uh, uh, you know, from this accepting place. Yeah, this is what's present now. A lot of grief, and can I be present with that myself? Um, and and not resistant. And of course, you know. You're, you're, you're wishing yourself well, you know, you're wishing everybody else well in that moment. You know, loving kindness is about in the moment, in this moment. Is it possible that everybody will be well? Everybody can be well and, and everybody can be at ease with their grief, right? Can we be at ease with that grief? Um, and in a sense, you know, isn't it, you know, our humanity is expressed in that grief. So we have this fear sometimes of, of expressing grief, and yet that's our humanity, right? And if we didn't have grief, then we'd be in trouble. I mean, if we didn't grieve, I should say, we, we, you know, something would be amiss. Um, so just looking at, at the resistance, perhaps, to the grief that might have come up for you, and trying to counter that resistance with something else, as opposed to opening to, the res opening to the grief and opening to the grieving from a heart of loving kindness. Um, so it's, I think that's what I'm hearing. So don't stop doing loving kindness, <laughs> but also don't separate loving kindness from everything else. Yeah. That's, that's a mistake we can make sometimes. Like I'm doing loving kindness practice. Yeah, but it's integrated, you know, with everything with everything else. It's not a separate practice per se. I mean, it can be, but it's not necessarily meant to be, at least in my experience. So, yeah, interesting question though. Hmm. Anything else? Yeah. Oops, sorry, just lost. <laughs> uh, I have two questions, and they're both practice questions. And um, I've been reading, um, a lot out of the um, forest refuge monks, and they use the uh, term deathless mm. when you talk about you know getting to the place of knowing, and leading to the door of, to deathless. And I just wanted your definition of deathless. And the other question has to do with what's the relationship of samadhi to vipassana when you go to the place. Sure that knows, and you're at the place that knows, where is somebody fitting in at that point? <laughs> you, you really ask small questions, don't you? <laughs> uh, first off, it's not just the forest monks that talk about the deathless, right? I mean, that's the, that, that term appears very often in, in the suttas.
since we're in the middle of a, some of us, some people here are, are taking a year-long class with me and Sandra on life, death, etc. You know, and we haven't even talked about the deathless per se. What is the deathless, right? So what dies, who dies, is the first question, right? So um, if one, as one, as one's, as awakening arises in any of us, and it may just arise momentarily, every time we sit, or we may find ourselves, you know, suddenly awakened, uh, that is, suddenly, you know, recognizing that there is no separation between self and other, that the, the, all the obstacles between self and other have just fallen away. So at that moment, in a sense, who's dying, right? The body dies, but that's it. So there's, you know, and this deathless can happen in any moment, right? So we move from moment to moment, um, and each moment is impacted by the moment before. As we practice, and you know, we're leaving fewer and fewer karmic footprints. You know, that's the deathless, right? So there is no, you know, there may be. Uh, it's it's the realization that there's no one to die. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, this we could get, we could do a whole week long retreat probably on this topic. So, the other question is is uh, one that's I've been talking about a lot actually. So uh, the question around the difference between samadhi, the, not the difference between samadhi, but when one moves from one to the other. Sure. Right. So samadhi, for those of you that are not familiar with the term, is really related to um, stillness of mind. It's the stillness of mind that we achieve through, um, certainly through sitting practice, uh, through awareness of breath, through awareness of body. And vipassana is um, seeing clearly uh, the true nature of experience. It's very difficult to see clearly the true nature of experience without having achieved a certain level of samadhi, right? So um, I always sort of describe it as a stairmaster, right? So we achieve a certain level of samadhi through um, either um, awareness, attention focused on one point or attention focused more openly. You know, depending on one's practice, and one can practice either way. As one achieves that uh, uh, first level of, of samadhi, stillness, one can then open up their awareness to experience arising and fading away. And in that, we start to see more clearly the true nature of experience. One can also become sort of addicted to samadhi, which some teachers refer to as stupid samadhi, right? Because it's really a lovely, you know, blissful place, right? We can just be there, you know. But we also have to live our lives, right? And, you know, if we're, if we're practicing in order to... Uh, 
achieve, I hate to use that word, if we're practicing for the purpose of awakening, if our goal, if our, if we're trying to see through our obstacles, <laughs> we have to explore what those obstacles are and start to recognize that those obstacles are constantly arising and fading away and that there is no true substance to those obstacles which we so closely identify with, the most important one being the obstacle of I am, right? So uh, in order to clearly see, obviously, we need to have a still mind. Now, how do you determine when the mind is still enough? How do you determine when you've achieved a level of samadhi that allows you to be present with the arising and fading away of all experience? And that's where the hindrances and the, the recognition of the hindrances and the, uh, is very useful. So the hindrances of sleepiness and sense desire and agitated mind and doubt and aversion. You know, it's like I use those, they're very helpful they're like little teachers that are arising and fading away at all times. But if you recognize that, okay, I'm sitting here in a place where those aversions are really at bay, where I have no desire to be any place other than I am, where you know the sense desires are gone, the mind is relative, the thoughts are relatively quiet, there's no doubt, there's no aversion, then we can open up. You know, and, and, and the mind will remain still, but we can start observing much more, much more closely. Um, so we need both, you know, plus loving kindness. You know, so it's all there, so that we're, we're, we're fully present with a still mind, with a heart of acceptance, and observing the arising and fading away, and the, the nature of our mind to kind of grasp at things that we like and push away things that we don't like. So this is what we start to observe through Vipassana. Now, then again, you have people, you know, there are different schools of Vipassana, right? So you have the Goenka school, which is totally, you know, body-based, you know, which is great. But in that school, there's very little talk about compassion and loving kindness. You know, and then you have the, the Thai forest tradition school and some of the other, many of the other, the Burmese tradition, which is, you know, really into sort of labeling and noting everything. The Thai forest tradition, which is much more open-hearted. So there's no one answer to that question because if you ask, if, if you ask that question of a Goenka teacher, because Goenka is no longer with us, I'm sure you would get a completely different answer, right? He would probably say that samadhi arises and if, I'm sure there's some people here who've been on Goenka retreats. Samadhi arises through the awareness of the impermanence of sensation in the body. <laughs> so, you know, if you go on a Goenka retreat, it's all body. Constant scanning and sweeping of the body and constant attention to sens sensations coming and going, you know, which can lead to samadhi. So, there you go. There's a non-answer to your question. <coughs> Right. Yeah, the breath, the breath fades, the, the sensation of the breath sort of falls into the background and we open up to other sensation arising and fading away and we actually, those sensations become the object of our awareness 
and we recognize like when a thought arises, how we might lean into that thought and grab that thought and start getting engaged. But we also recognize that if, if once that process, when we don't lean in, that that thought isn't really who I am. <laughs> it's not really my thought. It's just a thought that's coming and going. You know? Same thing with physical sensations, sounds, whatever. You know? So we, we start to, to see more clearly how we solidify around things and in the solidification, you know, that's what's causing our suffering. Yeah. Thank you. Um, which this kind of leads to, to some of what I was going to talk about today, which is um, tolerating samsara. Um, versus presence in samsara. So I had a, occasionally I work with individuals and for a number of years uh, I was working with a, an elderly lady named Alice who, uh, you know, I was asked by her stepdaughter to, to, to work with her and teach her meditation because she had wanted to learn about it and she was dealing with various ailments, um, a lot of pain. And I went to her apartment and um, she was in her bedroom sitting on a chair and I was, there was a chair, there was a little table and then a chair on the other side of the table which was where I sat. And um, this was our first meeting. She had three little remote controls on the table. One was for the air conditioner, one was for a fan and one was for the heater. And every 30 or 40 seconds, at least, she would like pick up one of the remotes. And you know, it was too cold, it was too hot, it was too this, it was too that. And she would continually be like playing with these remotes. I let this go for a while and then I took them all away from her, which really kind of shocked her, you know. It's like she was continually trying to negotiate with her experience. Yeah, she was continually trying to like make everything just right. And we worked for um, many years, three years, I think. And then the last few months, she was, uh, the, 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 my relationship with her really changed. I was part of a team of sort of caretakers, as it turned out. And, um, and so the relationship changed from one of actual teaching, meditation teaching, to just learning about acceptance and death. And, um, in that process, I had, you know, talked to her about the five, ref taught her about the five reflections, which are, for those of you that don't know, are um, I'm of the nature to grow old, I'm the nature grows to become sick, I'm the nature to die, I'm everything that is near and dear to me will vanish. All that I am born of my karma, I will, uh, and all that will remain will be my karma. So there were these five reflections that she learned and really took to heart. And then about two weeks before she died, she called me and thanked me for having taught her those and that she really appreciated that. And she had, you know, come to a decision not to have surgery around uh, uh, obstructed bowel. And I went to see her in the hospital. And before I'd gone to see her, she had met with the surgeon. Uh, who said, well, you know, you might as well have the surgery because it might work. 
And if it doesn't work, you know, you'll still die. So, so she decided to have the surgery. So she had the surgery on a uh, Friday and, um, or Monday, I can't remember when. And then um, initially it was fine, but then things got worse. So I went to see her the next week and she at that point was in intensive care. And that was the last place I thought she wanted to be was intensive care because you know, this is a woman who had been through a lot and the last place you want to be if you're dying is in intensive care. But she was there and um, I said goodbye and left and then she died a few hours later. And it turned out that she had chosen to be in intensive care because she wanted her entire family to be able to come and say goodbye. And her family was all over the world. Some people flew in from Australia and from England and elsewhere in the US. So they all got there. They came, they said goodbye, and then they removed all the you know, tubes and she died. And then it was a big party. <laughs> so this is somebody who actually, you know, when I first met her, she was trying to tolerate samsara, basically, and work around all the problems as she began to sort of realized that she had no control, she really had no control, even though she controlled her eventual demise, she actually did it from a place of recognizing that there was no control, you know, that she could let go, and in that letting go, she could then at least control the kind of end of her life to the point where she could say goodbye. And I, I was kind of amazed by you know, that shift. Um, and, you know, are we, and then something else slightly related to this happened last month when I was on retreat, um, and if any of you have been to the Forest Refuge, it's a part of Insight Meditation Society, but it's sort of in, the place is in continual retreat, so it never breaks silence. And this was a retreat that was led by a particular teacher. He's still, it's just ending actually. We could go for two week installments. But at the beginning of the retreat, I was there at the very beginning, and, and he said, um, you know, if you'd like to leave your phone at the office, they have a place for it. And I thought, well, that's interesting, you know, because I would rather have my phone and leave it off in my room just to see like how often I'm, you know, have I given up the phone? Is it possible for me to have this thing in my room and have no desire to use it? Versus, you know, having to have it hidden away so that I, I'll still have the desire but I won't be able to get it, yeah? That difference is really kind of interesting. And it, it, it relates to this famous Zen story uh, of a woman who was supporting a Zen monk. Some of you have probably heard this if, from me, if not from somebody else. She was supporting a Zen monk in a little hermitage. Um, and she was dying. And she was really wondering, you know, if she should leave this man enough money to continue, if she should continue her support after she died. Um, so she wanted to test his clarity. So she hired a prostitute and sent the prostitute to go to the hermitage where the Zen monk was. And, you know, this was in the middle of the night. And then she hears the Zen monk, you know, like berating the prostitute for showing up at his door and just throwing her out, you know, 
And then the next day, the woman threw the monk out, right? Because clearly the monk was too, you know, he hadn't, he hadn't gotten rid of his desire, his craving. For, he was too afraid of his own craving to allow the prostitute to actually come in the hermitage. Yeah? So this is tolerating samsara, right? It's like, okay, there, there's this continual suffering that exists, and I can just tolerate it. Versus allowing, the suffer, allowing samsara to be present and just being fully present with samsara. We have this notion that if we are awakened, if one is fully awakened, samsara doesn't exist for that person. What's really happening is that samsara is just part of experience. Samsara, that is this continual wheel of suffering that we find ourselves on in whatever way that manifests for each of us individually at any given time. And um, the Buddha describes three basic levels of suffering. So there's the obvious direct physical and mental suffering that we all have moment to moment, or every, you know, many of us have throughout the day. It can be great, it can be small. There's the suffering of constant change in the world. And there's the sort of generalized suffering of life's compositional nature. So it's kind of like this general malaise. There's that level of suffering. So there's specific suffering related to some specific pain or emotional stuff that's going on. There's this suffering of the recognition that everything is constantly coming and going and I can't tolerate that. You know, I want some solidity in my life. And then there's this more generalized suffering on life's general compositional nature. And we live our lives negotiating um, around these types of suffering. And at some point we realize that there must be another way, so we, we show up at a place like this. And we actually become much more intimate with this experience of suffering. You know? So the first part of our practice is actually starting to see just how we suffer. You know? And then through Vipassana, through insight, we start to see why we suffer and you know, what, we can, what we can change. And change these habit patterns that keep us suffering. We start to see how we're constantly you know, pushing away those things we don't want and holding the things we do want. And we start to see how this suffering is really, you know, how it manifests in our wheel of samsara. So we all have our own wheel of samsara. Yeah, we all have those things that we just can't let go of. You know, whether it's striving for a career or striving for a better house or striving for a better relationship or whatever it is, you know, we keep this going.
and of course one wheel will start another wheel, right? So, well, if I want a better place to live, then I have to have a better job. If I have a better job, I have to have this, and, I, and so on, right? Sometimes we can negotiate with this, you know, and, and escape it, you know, so we have escapism, right? We can go to the movies, we can watch TV, we can read a good novel. We can also escape by escaping to deep samadhi. Feels great, it's wonderful. But we have to recognize that that's what we're doing. You know? So there's a famous story, I doubt that it really happened, but it's a good story anyway. <clears throat> Do you know the f story about the 84th question? So this man comes to see the Buddha to get help with his problems. After the man had told the Buddha one of his problems and asked for help, the Buddha replied, I can't help you get rid of that problem. And the man was kind of surprised and he, uh, he told the Buddha of another problem. He thought to himself that the Buddha should at least be able to help him with that problem. Buddha said, no, I can't help you with that problem either. The man started to get really impatient. He said, how can it be that you are the perfectly enlightened Buddha when you can't even help people get rid of their problems? The Buddha answered, you will always have 83 problems in your life. Sometimes a problem will go, but then another problem will come. I cannot help you with that. The baffled man asked the Buddha, well, what can you help me with then? And the Buddha replied, I can help you get rid of your 84th problem. But what is my 84th problem? The Buddha replied, that you want to get rid of your 83 problems. Yeah. So, you know, the notion that we can get rid of these problems and no other problems will arise is what causes more problems, right? And we're always trying to negotiate with that. And the moment we see that, the moment we see that um, 84th problem arising, we can actually wake up, right? And at that moment, we learn to let life live through us rather than trying to control everything. Yeah? Learning to let life live through you as opposed to you living life is freedom. Yeah. And um, what's interesting is that, you know, as we take these practices on, and I know some of you here have a lot of experience, some of you who are relatively new, we can get to the point where we get caught in the idea of our own spirituality, of our own freedom.
but actually what's happening is that you're identified with being free. <laughs> so you, you're holding the, identif the identification that I am experiencing freedom. And we start talking about it you know, to everyone. Oh, I'm, I'm free. You know, I've experienced freedom. You know, and, and we start acting differently. And, um, it's a very, you know, it's, it's a common place to get to. This is a quote from Ajashanti. It says, the Buddha's insight into the middle way is not simply about a balance between extremes. This conventional understanding misses the deeper revelation of the middle way as being the very nature of unexcelled enlightenment. The middle way is an invitation to leap beyond nibbana and samsara and to realize the unborn Buddha mind right in the middle of everywhere. So we're not escaping samsara. We're not going to Nibbana. We're sort of beyond both at the point where freedom exists. So with this Zen monk who was thrown out, he was reacting to fear. So he thought he was free, right? And yet when he was really put to the test, he was afraid that he would give in to temptation and sense desire. He hadn't seen through the emptiness of self. So he was escaping the wheel of samsara by seeing it as the enemy to overcome, right? So rather than having some compassion for this prostitute, Accepting the possibility that if lust arises, it simply is part of his experience and he need not act upon it. He feared that, his, he, he feared that it would, right? So he tossed her out. So, you know, we, we can test ourselves in this in so many ways. Um, you know, just allow yourself to be present with something that you really, 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 really want. And then ask yourself if you really need it, you know? and feel that difference. So when you're, and, and one way that happens of course is in formal practice, right? And we're sitting in formal practice and a thought arises, a sense desire arises. We can see it's arising and if we engage with it, you know, that's craving for whatever that is. That's craving for identification with the thought. It's craving for that particular sense desire. And the moment we see that, if, we, if the mind relaxes around it and lets it go, that's a moment of freedom. Yeah? And if the mind grabs for it, then it's like, okay, that's the mind grabbing for it. Okay. Can I be with that? It doesn't mean you have to act on it. You just sort of feel the mind grabbing on it. That's also recognition that that's samsara, and it's part, of, it's part of our experience. So the knowing of, cessa of cessation, the knowing of the sensation of craving, arrives as a simple knowing. The mind will chime in and say, this is it. That, it is, that is known that this is just the mind chiming in. So the mind will chime in, 
saying this is it, but then we just know that the mind is chiming in. So we don't have to react to that, we don't have to get caught in that. So in this brief moment where cessation is experienced, nothing is needed. Joy is unconditioned. And to quote from the Dhammapada, and this is allegedly what the Buddha said when on his night of enlightenment, house builder, you're seen. You will not build a house again. All your rafters are broken. The ridgepole dismantled. Immersed in dismantling, the mind has attained the end of craving. So when that joy arises from that temporary end of, momentary end of craving, at that moment the ridgepole of the self has been dismantled. Samsara is neither tolerated or escaped, rather it is simply another part of experience. And the heart and the mind sees that and moves on. So, you know, as we continue our practice, we can start to see how often we're trying to escape samsara or just sort of recognizing that this is samsara, this is life, you know. Can I be present with that without being in it, okay? So I'll just relate one more little story. This has to be, yeah, this is definitely another Zen story. Just to end on a bit of lightness. So there's a master and there's its student as usual in a Zen tradition. And the master is on one side of the river and the student is on the other side of the river and the student writes the master a note saying, Master, unmoved by the eight worldly winds, serenely I sit on the purplish gold terrace. Unmoved by the eight worldly winds. So he was not moved by uh, pain or... uh, he He was not attached to any of the eight worldly winds. pain and pleasure, success and failure, etc. So the master reads this letter and he picks up a little brush and puts some ink on it and he scribbles the word fart across the letter. Fart. Sends the letter back to the scholar, to the student. And the student was so upset he went across the river and reprimanded the master for being rude. And the master laughed and said, you said you were no longer moved by the eight worldly winds and yet just one fart and you ran across the river like a rat. So that says it all, you know. (laughs) Just play with it and see, you know, when 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 you're caught up in something and when you release something and then see what happens the next moment. So it's actually related to that first question about, uh, Sensitivity, you know, sensitivity to noise, sensitivity to light, you know, 
we're, we've opened up so much that you know we're, we're afraid of certain things you know but can we actually open up to the point where none of that uh, ruffles our feather as it were you know we can still be free even with all of that stuff happening um, and that's the challenge you know that's that's where we go with practice so I think I'll end there with a little bit of time if anybody has any thoughts or questions about that yep Sorry. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I've heard that um, generosity is a... Um, Hold on, can you... Oh, sorry. I've heard that um, generosity is an anecdote to, um, antidote to craving. Yeah. Um, I've been practicing generosity, but I still have tremendous craving. Mm. And I was wondering... Um, does it take forever? <laughs> <laughs> Generosity is an antidote to um, craving. But we can also uh, start to crave the idea of being generous. So you just have to find the balance there. Yeah. Um, It's definitely an antidote to uh, taking what isn't given freely, right? So we, we practice generosity to, to work with letting go. Um, but we, uh, what, yeah, I mean, so if, if I, would, I would say, yes, continue practicing generosity as not necessarily as an antidote to craving because you're, you're, you're then attaching a sort of reason for practicing generosity um, as opposed to just being generous, right? No? No, my, my nature is to be generous. But oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm uh, somewhat more conscious of it now. Yeah. You know, yeah. And I do pat myself on the back occasionally. Right. But, um, yeah. Use the mic, please. Yeah. Oh, sorry. The, um, yeah. So, so you're... you're generous by nature yeah so for you you know you may need to add uh, some other antidotes none of these antidotes are guaranteed by the way you know <laughs> but um, you might just sort of observe as you're being generous if there's any expectation attached to that generosity that's all yeah um, yeah otherwise just keep being generous because what do you have to lose right uh, just the mic up here. Thanks. Hmm. Oh, Sorry. Um, I've been practicing off and on for many years with many offs, but trying to be mindful um, and practicing loving kindness. Um, today in the meditation, I felt that I felt like moments of peace in the meditation. I also felt a lot of angry thoughts and feelings, which I've been having a lot of, you know, focused on a particular person. But what I wanted to ask about was that I can't really get past the angry feeling till I feel it in my body, till I take note of it. And then I see how utterly painful that is and it helps me release it. Do you, is that a technique? That's, Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's the you know that's mindfulness is, mm-hmm. is you know recognizing how the anger where the anger is felt yeah and being and then just holding that what do you discover when you hold it i feel so sorry for myself actually but i mean I, like what, sorrow of of that right but as the sensation as oh. you're present with the sensation what happens when i recognize it in that it's like unkind to myself and it's you know, painful and it's a distraction and everything, it dissipates actually. Right, and the anger dissipates. Y- yeah, yeah. yeah. If, I, I don't know which goes first. I think the physical thing goes first the, actually. Yeah. But who knows, you know. Yeah. The, yeah. the, the anger will not last more than a minute or mm-hmm. so if you don't feed it. And the way not to feed it is to come into the body as you do mm-hmm. and just be present with that sensation and, yeah. and just observe what happens with that sensation. You know, and then the anger will dissipate until another thought arises to spark <laughs> the yeah, anger again. But you know, again, that's yeah. you know, that's yeah. that's why we practice. Mm-hmm. Because you start to see, oh, that's just a thought. Mm-hmm. You know, and yes, you you learn through practice and through you know your memory that this is a, this is energy wasted. You know, the anger that for this person who's not even here right now is only generated by a thought about this person. Mm-hmm. And the thought itself is not real. And, and, and I guess the feeling of pain to myself, too, that it's unnecessary. Yeah. 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 The pain, I mean, the sensation of anger in the body is, it may be pain or it may just be tightness or whatever it is, but it's, you know, it's... Well, I mean, the anger is pain, I yes, think. Yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. To me. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, what you, what you described is... is, the, is the practice of mindfulness, mm-hmm. really mindfulness of the body. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Just the lady in front Thank of you. you. Um, I have a question about, kind of about what you're just saying now, um, about uh, and also about uh, stupid samadhi. <laughs> um, I feel like um, when there are times when, like you're talking about uh, overwhelming sensations, um, and then. I find that my technique is always just to go go into, or often to go into my body, and um, and there, because I think it's like a com- it's become a comfortable, familiar place. Then I think I can become maybe go into that um, stupid smile. Yeah, like lost place, like lost place, yeah. and um, and I'm wondering if there, are, what are other techniques for right. yeah. yeah, so. Um, I think the way to sort of check, right, is just to, to be fully present. So you you go into the body, but if when you're in the body, you know, there's suddenly this very nice blissed out feeling, right? Every once in a while, just make sure you're still in your body. You know, make sure you're still feeling the body. You know, just come to points of contact or come, come back to the breath and really feel the breath. Uh, and that keeps you present. So, I mean, the, the, the problem, I mean, stupid samadhi, and, and this is not my phrase, it's, I, I, I first heard it from Ch- Chokni Rinpoche, I think, who talked about it. But, you know, it's like this feeling of being completely blissed out and completely unaware that you're blissed out, you know, in a sense, you know. So that it's, it's not quite, it may be this feeling of being spaced out, you know, that's one way of experiencing it, and that's just being spaced out, because when you're spaced out, you don't know what's happening. You don't even know that you're spaced out. You know, it's just like I'm spaced out. Um, 
until, until you know, a loud noise happens. And that loud, you know, a loud noise, and this is where, you know, sound can be helpful, right, is, is that it brings you back, right? So just keep in mind that, you know, when we are medit- in these practices, and particularly in mindfulness practices, the idea is not to space out. The idea is not to, quote, bliss out. But the idea is to be fully present and fully open to whatever the experience is. So if you're questioning, you know, if you are fully open, then go to a very direct sensation. So go to the, you know, direct attention to the breath, direct attention to your feet, direct attention to your butt on the chair, whatever it is. And, you know, that'll ground you and, you know, remind you that, ah, I'm, I'm present. That makes sense? Um. It does, it does make sense, thank you. Um, I think when you're describing it, I realize like if I hear a loud noise, like I don't, I don't startle, so I'm not sure it is okay, um, but that, but I, th- I was wondering, yeah, it seems like it's more like a, um, like a control, like I'm, I'm like, okay, everything is too big, so I'm gonna like just focus on my body, so it's yeah, actually more that's like not, a... That's fine, that's, that doesn't seem unskillful at all though. But it, it kind of lulls me into passivity sometimes. Aha, uh-huh, okay. Yeah. But, so you recognize that. Right? It's, just, it's what I was talking about. It's just recognizing, okay, so there's the passivity. Next. <laughs> yeah. So it's not getting lost in the passivity. That's all. Yeah. Okay, let's just sit for another minute. Thank you all for your questions. Challenging questions, I have to say. So just coming back to the breath, coming back to the body, coming back to the chair, cushion, coming back to the heart. So may the merit of our practice today, the merit of our practice every day, may that merit gained be shared for the well-being of all without exception. May all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Free from fear and the causes of fear. May all beings be free, and may all beings find peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.